And this is the Love the Cove podcast, where we'll be diving into covenant history and exploring what makes the Evangelical Covenant Church covenant as we move toward our future together as mission friends. Hello, hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Love the Cove podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jane Shaw Pomeroy. And I'm your other host, Kathy Norman Peterson. In this podcast, we're going to be sharing stories from covenant history as we explore what makes the Evangelical Covenant Church covenant. We're going to be looking at the roots of distinctives like the affirmations and resolutions and how has a church lived them out and what invitations God has for us today. And we're so excited because we're beginning with John Weeborg as our very first guest to talk about covenant beginnings. John is a theologian and historian extraordinaire, deeply respected throughout the Covenant Church. John wrote a column in the Companion for 30 years and served as full-time professor of theology at North Park Theological Seminary for about that long, where their signature Center for Spiritual Direction was named in his honor. We're grateful for his willingness to share with his wisdom, expertise, and experience, as well as his deep love for the church. Before we get into the history portion of this podcast, We wanted to share some personal stories. In each episode of the Love the Cove podcast, we'll also be sharing stories from people across the denomination where they answer the question, when did you feel like you were covenant? For some, there was a distinct moment. For others, the journey was more gradual. So Jane, tell me, what did your journey look like? When did you first feel like you were covenant? A little background about me. Born in Taiwan, my family immigrated to the States when I was really young. We go to churches as a way to connect with Chinese-speaking communities. Um, And it wasn't until eighth grade where I finally became a Christian. And that was when I became very involved at a Taiwanese, charismatic, non-denominational church. At the age of 16, I sensed a call to serve the church, though not knowing exactly what that would look like. I had a very limited understanding of denominations. I remember when I was in high school taking standardized tests and you were asked what denomination you were a part of. There was no option to just be Christian. There was four columns of names that I've never heard of. So I picked the one that sounded the most straightforward, Church of Christ. I started working at Covenant offices in 2015 by way of the communications team, knowing that I had a learning curve ahead of me. I started asking, why be part of a denomination? What was motivating this network of churches to move together? What was knitting these people to each other? At a practical level, I saw how having a larger network meant that offerings like Bethany Benefit Service was possible, providing comprehensive benefit packages to denominational conference staff, missionaries, local church, camp staff, and retirees. I was also moved seeing the missionaries that the ECC sends out, which is possible because we are doing it together. I've had friends in the past who were hoping to serve as missionaries, but since they were from smaller churches and under-resourced communities, they weren't able to raise the funds to go. But in the ECC, instead of having to fully lean on their local church, other covenant churches are able to come alongside a missionary's home church to help send them to go and live out the Great Commission along with the Great Commandment. I remember in 2018 at the 133rd annual meeting of the ECC, Keith and Florence Gustafson were honored for the time they served in the DR Congo, Florence for 24 years and Keith for 34 years. Mission is something that we do 
but it's also something that we need because we need to learn the diversity of language and culture. We need to see how God works in other people. We need to understand, expand our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus because our own routines and our own culture and our own place puts blinders on us. So we can't always conceive of all that God wants to do. We need the CEUM and the CEUM needs us. We need to know each other, to live together, to talk, to listen, to grow old together, and to prepare other generations. We need each to share how God is at work. This is when I started to sense this invitation from God. Perhaps the covenant isn't a space to belong, but instead an invitation into being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Wanting to make an investment in what made me come alive in a way that kept drawing me closer to the heart of God, I looked into the spiritual direction program at North Park Theological Seminary. And my favorite part of ministry has always been sitting with individuals one-on-one -on -one as they share their hearts, questions, and fears while looking for the movements of God in their lives. In our second class as cohort 16, John Weeborg shared about the covenant's pietistic beginnings and how it's impacted their engagement with spiritual direction. It was in John's sharing of covenant beginnings where I realized that I didn't just work for the covenant, but I am indeed part of the covenant. As he shared about how a group of Swedes were so enamored by the knowledge of God to the point that they were referred to as headies and how their hunger for more led them into higher education, I was struck by how their story paralleled with mine. I'd also been looking at things all wrong. Being part of the covenant is not about assimilating or adapting into a community with set expectations, but instead it's about how God masterfully weaves our stories together in a way that invites us to do together what we cannot do alone. To become part of the covenant was not about me changing and falling in line, but instead God was inviting me in, asking me to bring the fullness of who I am. I'm here because this is where God has led me. I'm a Taiwanese-born American who felt called to ministry and to love the church when I was 16. I've been on a journey to live into that calling ever since, and have now found myself as part of a denomination that was found by Swedes. Again, it's insane the way God masterfully weaves our stories together. I'm excited because as the covenant works on living into diversity and seeking shalom, I believe we will see an expansion of what the lived out covenant ethos looks like. The covenant started with a group of Swedes, but the blessings and invitation that has resulted is not just for their descendants, but for all of God's people, including me. Hi, John. This is Jane Chow Pomeroy. How are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. Um, all right. You can start whenever. Okay. Uh, I would like to begin with uh, the fact that covenant history really begins in Germany in a movement within the Lutheran Church in Germany by Philip Jakob Spener, who, uh, whose work is identified 
with pietism. In uh, 1675, he uh, wrote a book called Pia Desideria, and in it he spoke about renewal within the church. And among those uh, uh, offerings for renewal was a word conventicle, which had to do with small groups. And this is a development of Luther's idea of the priesthood of all believers. And in these gatherings of small groups, it was for the discussion of the sermon, or it might have been a Bible text. And um, one of the innovations, although it wasn't uh, all over by any means, because it could become controversial, but uh, women began to speak and ask questions. And uh, in the, so these conventicles were uh, an opportunity for lay people uh, to begin uh, their discussions. And a name that is identified with uh, uh, women beginning to speak was Johanna Eleanor uh, Peterson, who lived from 1644 to 1724. And um, so these this whole the conventical movement had a way of working its way uh, into Sweden and within the Lutheran church because that was the only church in Sweden at the time. And the conventical movement, uh, as it found its way uh, in, into Sweden, uh, became a, a part of uh, uh, Lutheranism there. And as uh, the conventical movement grow, uh, grew uh, with, with these uh, small groups, uh, it went by another name called, the Swedish word was lesser, which meant readers. And it eventually became uh, identified with uh, Carl Olaf Rosanius, who uh, edited a paper called Pietistin, the Pietist. And it became a very, very popular uh, paper. And uh, these small groups of readers uh, read uh, uh, Rosanius's paper and the Bible, and uh, they had uh, their discussions as well. And so these groups uh, proliferated, uh, and so the, the readers became uh, antecedents of the covenant movement uh, these small groups again, where uh, people began to grow in their faith and in their questions and in their ability um, uh, to express themselves. Uh, the, uh, one outgrowth of the conventical movement in uh, Sweden uh, was um, uh, a, a couple of women, uh, Maria Nils' daughter, or Maria Ball became the grandmother of David Nibel, the founder of North Park University. But um, she was very mindful of um, the need for uh, uh, the education of youth. And, and um, she went to visit her pastor, the Lutheran pastor in her town of Ball. And uh, he was very uh, sympathetic to her. And uh, he told her that she should uh, read uh, the Bible uh, texts for a year. 
and she gathered another woman named Brigida Olson, and they gathered a whole group of women, uh, and they had a conventicle for a whole year of Bible reading, and he also gave her a book of sermons by Luther that they read. And um, this was a, a source of somewhat of controversy because uh, conventicles without a pastor present was against the law at this time in Sweden. And um, she was turned down by the authorities uh, of taking young boys. Quick fact, child auctions were practiced in Sweden during the 19th and early 20th century. It was kind of like foster care where authorities would receive bids from individuals for how much money they would need in order to take in orphans and poor children. Uh, because she wanted to form a school and educate them. And um, she didn't forget the boys when she was turned down. And um, uh, finally, uh, to make a real long story short, uh, Maria and Brigitte uh, came to the place uh, where she and these other women uh collected enough money that they could buy these children and she did and it it turned out that that she opened up a school and it uh, became a place of education for these young people in the uh, town of of Val and and so you have now this uh, beginning of education for uh, these young people and uh Uh, One of my former students, who's now academic dean at North Park Seminary, Dr. Michelle Clifton Soderstrom, has titled this kind of work reparative justice because it began to repair all kinds of loopholes in the society where in the conventicles, women began to speak. And now uh, education began to happen uh, in the form of Christian education and 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 uh, young people began to learn various skills and uh, uh dr soderstrom at uh, at school she now has uh, opened up a whole class of restorative arts at the state uh, penitentiary uh, outside of chicago uh and and so uh the seminary students uh, have begun working at uh, together with inmates uh, and, and they have a whole uh, uh, class uh, curriculum for restorative arts, and it's reparative justice. Uh, so now you see uh, the pietism that started with Stainer and worked with Eleanor Peterson and then with Maria Vall and Birgitta Olson. Now, as reparative justice uh, has begun to work its way at North Park, at the State Correctional Penitentiary outside of Chicago, which is a a marvelous legacy. Now, so another part of these uh, conventicles became the dissatisfaction they had, the the conventicles had with the state church because uh, of the nominal Christianity and they thought of the unworthy participation in the Lord's Supper, which was sometimes served by priests in the state church that were intoxicated. And so uh, they, they, uh, they looked uh, to find uh, priests that were uh, uh, showed uh, new life in Christ 
and started having uh, communion societies that were served by such priests. And uh, these uh, communion societies uh, would have uh, separate uh, communion services all within the province of the state church, but apart from the state church service. And that became uh, a matter of controversy, and, and it, uh, it led in 1876 to uh, Paul Peter Waldenstrom uh, serving 300 of these uh, mission friends, so to speak, at, in the mission chapel, not in the state church. And uh, that became a public scandal to the point that in 1878, the Mission Covenant Church was formed in Sweden that grew out of these um, mission societies that uh, had expressed such dissatisfaction with uh, the spiritual life of the state church and much and some of the, of the priests. Uh, and so that was the formation of the Covenant Church of Sweden. And that leads us then to the immigration, uh, because 1.3 million Swedes immigrated uh, to the United States. And and, uh, when they came here, they found uh, something that they had never experienced before, because there was no Lutheran state church here. There was total religious pluralism, and so, there was, in a sense, nothing to renew. And so they were, uh, uh, the conventicle, so to speak, uh, lost their structure uh, of what it was that they could uh, engage in as far as renewal was concerned. And uh, they were looking around because uh, the other Lutheran immigrants were forming synods, such as the Augustana Synod was what... uh, the Swedish Lutherans found and the Norwegians formed synods and even the mission friends formed several synods of their own and um, eventually uh, the Covenant Church was formed in uh, in 1885 and uh, as a a church uh, uh, they had uh, as they began developing, they remembered, however, certain things. Number one, they had a certain Lutheran mentality that they uh, wanted to maintain because uh, they they maintained, for example, the church year, and they maintained the lectionary texts. Uh, I, I still remember that when I started my ministry, I preached on the lectionary texts that were taken from the Church of Sweden. And when I did my internship in Lincoln, Nebraska, I borrowed a a handbook, that is the handbook that is used for the services of baptism, funerals, weddings, and so forth. It had all the texts for the church year for three years from an uncle of mine who was a covenant pastor. And all of those texts were in there. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, they, they, uh, were not ready to throw overboard their heritage, but found it very formative and something that sustained them, uh, in, in faith. And, uh, uh, 
something that was kind of ironic, and you might find it uh, even humorous. Uh, uh, early covenant pastors didn't wear robes, uh, but they were not ready to be so informal on Sunday morning because my own father-in-law was a covenant pastor, a mission friend. They wore uh, rather formal suits, not business suits, but these very formal swallowtail coats, long uh, black, gray, uh, and striped pants, and uh, uh, solid gray vests that you would see in formal gatherings at weddings or uh, business gatherings and so forth, but not business suits. And I still have his uh, formal Sunday uh, uh, suit to wear and, and so forth. Uh, I remember my uh, daughter happened to see it hanging in the closet and she said, what's this? She had never seen such an outfit, but it was their formal Sunday preaching uh, uh, suit. Um, and and so uh, when, when the covenant people came to the United States, they, they brought with them this sense of new life in Christ as a criterion for uh, the church. Uh, but at the same time, they brought with them a churchly mentality that was not ready to be given over. So they, uh, for example, uh, believed in the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, that it was not symbolic, but it was the real gift of Christ's body and blood. Um, uh, for people who had such deep needs in their uh, in their life for the grace of Christ, and and so uh, that probably is enough uh, of our history for today. Uh, so I thank you uh, very much for letting me uh, talk with you, John. Thank you so much. I feel like you got a whole bunch of years into a few minutes so thank you for that overview super helpful we're wondering if you would answer this for us when did you feel like you were really part of the covenant well see uh i was raised that way my grandfather uh was uh secretary of of my home church they they were he was an immigrant and when uh, my home church was formed, he was the first secretary of it. So I, uh, I guess you could say I just uh, uh, grew up uh, uh, knowing nothing else. And, and uh, I was baptized and confirmed in the Covenant Church in Pender, Nebraska. And uh, it was a church my grandfather uh, was one of the founders of it. So I didn't know much else than that. I don't know if I can, if that's a very good answer. So I didn't know much else than that. It's a very good answer. The last question that we have is, do you have any words that you'd like to share to the Covenant Church today? I, I guess, uh, I, I remember I asked my mother, I, see, I, I went to one-room country school in Nebraska for all eight grades, uh, and I, I asked her one time uh, how people knew they were Christians, and um, she uh, didn't, uh, she struggled with uh, some kind of an answer, 
But when I got home, she said, I made an appointment for you with our pastor. And she, but she didn't ask me if I wanted to go. She just told me <laughs> you were going. And, 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 um, uh, uh, my pastor that, that confirmed me was a, a man of great intellect. And, um, so I, I went into his study. I was between seventh and eighth grade at the time. And, uh, he asked me why I had come to see him, and I told him the same thing. And his first question to me was, well, John, he said, do you believe in Jesus? And I said, yes. And then he quoted Romans, 7, uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you, you believe in uh, your heart, the Lord Jesus, that God raised him from the dead, and, uh, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he looked at me and he said, uh, John, that's all you need to know. He said, that doesn't depend on anything to do with your feelings. Everything has to do with the promise in God's word. And that, that, that just about ended our conversation. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I've thought a great deal about that visit with Pastor Carlson because he never asked me if I wanted to make sure or anything like that for him. The issue was God had already made sure about it. And, mm. and he had made a promise to me and the issue was it was in the word. Mm. And well, after, you know, when I finished uh, graduate school and that I, I studied the, a lot in the history of theology, I, I knew that uh, that was a, come from pretty much of an Augustinian Lutheran tradition that you trusted the word. You didn't trust your feelings. And uh, that, is, uh, that saved me an awful lot of agony that I trust the promise. And, and uh, so uh, I guess I, I would like uh, covenant people to, to live by the promise of God. And that that promise is an anchor that will not shift. And, and uh, you know, now we're living through a, a pandemic. I had to learn that word. Uh, you know, uh, in, the, in these kinds of times, you live by promise. And that promise will not shift. So uh, I, I guess that's what I'd like people to, to, to trust in the promise of God. Thank you, friends, for listening to our first episode of the Love the Cove podcast. We'll be posting new episodes every other week. Coming up, we're talking about pietism. What is it? How has it shaped the covenant? And how have we lived it out? If you're interested in sharing your story on when you felt like you were a covenant, send us an email at lovethecove at covechurch.org. Bye.